the letter of Paul to the church in Galatia, chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Then after 14 years of ministry, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not even forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, there are people who are here, who are in a place that, uh, that I've been, where I have questions, real questions. And I'm, I remember, Lord, being bound by wrong answers to these questions. And Lord, I thank you for your freedom. The freedom that your gospel gives frees me from me. And Lord, in this moment, I'm asking you to show your freedom infinitely better than I can explain it. Lord, I thank you for your freedom unto your gospel going to all peoples. Lord, in this moment, I, I silence the voice of the accuser. And I ask, I ask for a, a spirit of prophetic power to be upon the reception of your word today that you would give us light to understand real questions amen amen Uh, welcome again to the springs if you're visiting my name is peter and i serve as the lead pastor Uh, today we are in week three of our unfiltered series we we're going to answer the third poignant question of our series. We're doing this series in tandem with our campus ministry, uh, with their growth groups and their campus night that meets Tuesday night at 5 p.m. Uh, more information in the back about that. Uh, we're, we're doing this in tandem with our campus ministry all month here, asking hard questions that the culture is already asking and, and answering them with honest answers. Uh, today, the question is this. Isn't Christianity repressive and regressive, taking us back? Repressive and regressive. Today we're going to talk a lot about what real freedom is. Growing up, I uh, considered myself religious, but I didn't follow the rules because I wanted to be free to do what I wanted. It was as simple as that. I wanted the freedom to make the choices I wanted to make. And here's the problem with that. It was the least liberating venture you could ever imagine. Because I would go after what I wanted, but I would be bound 
by my own appetites. And it was never satisfying when I would face the one decision after another and continue to be caught up in the same sins and the same appetites that never would satisfy. It was not uh, a liberating venture. It was actually repressive, seeking after my own desires. And then I was invited to a campus ministry and uh, the Bible was preached. And I saw through the message of Jesus Christ that he can set me free from me and set me free for him and set me free to live life the way life is meant to be lived. Now, fast forward just a few years. Uh, a few years ago, I was talking about this freedom on the campus at Texas State University. And uh, maybe if I back up a little bit, is that going to help? Back up here. Uh, I was talking about uh, freedom in Christ, preaching the gospel. I was doing a God test. Anyone who's ever done the God test, the God test is a tool that we use uh, to be able to, to communicate the gospel. Not only is it a conversation starter for Christians to talk about the gospel, but it's, a, it's an ability for Christians to learn about people and what they're feeling, people that we're wanting to minister to. If you've ever done the God test, it starts with this question. Do you believe in God? If the answer is yes, uh, we, we stick to the questions, 10 questions associated with that with side B. Uh, and if the answer is no, we flip it over and ask some other questions. So I asked this one kid, let's just call him Mike. I said, Mike, uh, you know, question one, do you believe in God? He says, absolutely not. I said, okay, well, we'll take that as a no. And so I started asking him, you know, why don't you believe in God? And uh, he says, after all the evil things that Christianity has done and religion has perpetrated, how could I believe in this God? I said, okay. I went to question two and question three, and somewhere around uh, why the mystery of why life exists on a spinning planet, you know, basic astrophysics, he actually paused and said, okay, time out. I actually do believe that God exists. I just don't follow religion. Organized religion is what he said. Uh, and I said, okay, well, can I ask you more about that? He said, yeah. I said, I actually have to flip over the God test. So I flipped it over, and I asked him, so, you know, what, how would you describe God in your own words? And he really liked that question. He wanted to kind of have his own thoughts that he got to make up God, uh, which is fun. doesn't change who God is, but he, uh, he started sharing things that actually intrigued me. I was like, man, that's a, I'm going to steal that, saying it like that. Uh, and then I asked, question four, I think, uh, what does God expect of us? And his countenance totally changes. He says, see, that's the problem. God doesn't expect things of us. That is so repressive. And I had to look at him like, okay, at that point, I didn't actually know what that word meant. But I'm like, it's not repressive. I didn't know what that meant. He said, this is the, this is the problem with Christians and religious people. God doesn't want to repress and, and, and cause us to be controlled and not be able to do what we want. See, God doesn't expect anything of us. He wants us to just do what we want. I sat there and just kind of let it stew for a little bit. And I said, Mike, I got to cut in here and ask you a question. Because like three minutes ago, you were talking about how religion has you know, perpetrated all this evil in the world. And now you're saying that uh, God doesn't expect anything of us. So like putting this together, why would God expect anyone to not perpetrate evil? 
And he looked at me silently for a while, and he literally said this. He says, I guess I'm kind of contradicting myself. I would love to tell you that at that moment of revelation, he you know, gave me his number. We became best friends, and I baptized him. Uh, I didn't. But I, I can tell you that he's processing th- some things that are really important. Things that we need to process. We're processing this question, isn't Christianity repressive and regressive? And like we've been doing this whole series, and God willing will continue to do, I want to give you something infinitely better than my answer to this question. We're going to do our best to allow the Bible to answer this question. The Word of God has some things to say about this timeless question. Isn't Christianity repressive and regressive? We're going to go verse by verse through our passage. I want to read with you verse 1 again. The Apostle Paul says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking along with me Titus. I'm going to stop there, give you a little background. This man, Paul, who went up to Jerusalem after 14 years of ministry. Let's, let's give you some background to what, who this person is and why he was going up to Jerusalem. Paul was uh, also known as Saul of Tarsus. Uh, we think he probably started to use the, the name Paul later in life when he started ministering in the Greek context. Some people think he changed his name. Um, there's no indication of that, but same guy, uh, Saul Paul. Uh, he was uh, born into an uh, intellectually elite family uh, of Judaism. And he was the Jew of the Jews, he called himself. He was trained under Gamaliel. And when this new thing in Judaism started to spring up where even non-Jews could be saved by God, this was unthinkable. This was reprehensible uh, to a Jew who understood themselves to be the chosen nation and the way to get to God is to obey all of his rules, he violently opposed this new sect, this new way they called themselves. He persecuted Christians, he attacked Christians, hunted them down, and he was on his way at one point to Damascus. He had letters and he had names. There had been a leak and he had understood, he got the names of all the people who were in this synagogue worshiping Jesus. And he went to persecute them, to kill them. And on the way there, he was encountered by Jesus himself. Uh, He was terrified, he was converted, and he couldn't see for like days. Uh, He became a preacher of the same faith that he once attacked. And he preached the message of how Jesus saves sinners. And risked his life for this. In fact, he became a church planner and a missionary, especially unto Gentiles, who he formerly believed, if you're not a Jew, how could you believe this? I'm going to attack you for this heresy. And he became the main proponent of Christians preaching the gospel to non-Jews. After almost two decades, this man who preaches the gospel hears of some old views creeping back into the church. Now for this, I have to just explain to you the difference between uh, what religion without Jesus teaches, whether it's Judaism, like what he had clung to before, uh, or, or any sort of 
religious adherence like what I tried to grow up with or anything teaches. It's man's attempt at self-liberation. Everyone say self-liberation. If I go to church enough, if I pray towards Mecca five times a day, if I give this money, if I seek my oneness, I can self-liberate. The difference between religion without Jesus versus faith in Jesus, which is categorically different, is it's not about self-liberation. It's about God himself coming to liberate us. Jesus, as Paul proclaimed among the Gentiles, lived a perfect life. He perfectly fulfilled the moral law. We're not left to ourselves to define for ourselves what perfect means. All this stuff that sometimes is hard to read. Anyone try to read the Bible often? I try to read it every year. Sometimes, let's be honest, reading through parts of this, it gets laborious. Like, man, this is a lot of rules. Let me help you with this. I encourage you to read the Bible a lot. It's way better than your thoughts and way better than mine. And every time you find yourself at a laborious place, like, man, this is so many rules, just think, Jesus did all of this, and I could never do this. You're reading through this. This is what Paul taught. The liberator of all people who failed to self-liberate comes to set us free. When we can't get to God, he comes to us. This is different. This is the freedom that he had that was being spied out by other religious people. God liberates mankind. All these things Jesus has fulfilled, lives a perfect life. Or you read in Leviticus here, the law about how sacrifices are made for our imperfection. I mean, there's so many things like the goat or the the lamb has to be perfect. Well, think when you read all this, Jesus did all of this too because he lived the life we should have lived and then he died the perfect sacrifice, the death that you and I should have died. This is the gospel. Only a perfect sacrifice can atone for our sin. We are so separated from God in our sin that we can never self-liberate. Our attempts at self-liberation bind us more And sin against God more. And God is so merciful that he would step into that place in Paul's life, in this guy's life, in your life today, in October of 2017, and say, enough with this. I'm going to set you free. This is the gospel that he preached, he gave his life for. This is the gospel that Paul risked his life. He was beaten, he was flogged, he was whipped three different times. He was stoned once and left for dead. And after almost two decades of preaching this gospel, that we can never liberate ourselves, but Jesus sets us free. And he assures us of this freedom that he confers to us by after dying from, uh, from the inflictions of the cross, because of our sin, he rose again from the dead. And therefore, you can have life. He preached this and he heard that in Jerusalem, the place where this message started, there were some people slipping back into the church and trying to kind of bring people back into the religious bondage of these vain attempts at self-liberation. Paul heard of this. He heard of this rumor. And that's why it says he went up to Jerusalem. Back to Galatians 2, verse 2. I went up because of a revelation. Basically, God told him, go back to Jerusalem. 
to set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. I'm going to stop there. He wanted to set before them the gospel. He's saying, Jesus sets us free from our own thoughts and our own attempts at liberating ourselves. Our vain attempts. This is what I've been preaching. This is what I've seen miracles as it proliferates all around the known world. And I'm hearing that there's some other message that you're going back to, that you're regressing to. And he goes back to the influential people and he says, let me just preach this to you at least maybe because you, you've forgotten it or at least to confer that we, we're actually preaching the same message here. Did this not happen? Did this Jesus really not die and raise again? Are these not the implications of this message on our message in our life? And he preaches the gospel to them and it says, I didn't want to think for a minute that what I'm preaching and all the work I've done would be in vain. Here's why I think, in my opinion, why he would think that this was in vain. Because if, if the message of his life is that he is set free from the bondage of religious adherence to an old letter of the law in Judaism, to preach the gospel, to plant a whole church among Gentiles, and the very thought that before he dies, there's kind of like a, a, a split. Like, okay, now there's kind of like a Jewish church for Christians and like a Gentile church for Christians. The amount of deflation that would come his way from thinking like this is what my life leads to, two separate churches. He said, no, that would be vain. That would make all this work and the message itself that I preach be lacking. Think about this. The gospel that doesn't break through cultural barriers is missing something extremely important. If we grow up and we say we believe in the gospel, but we cling more to our cultural preferences, we don't have a political problem, beloved. We have a gospel problem. And we're not going to preach the gospel in vain. The gospel sets me free from the bondage of my own preferences. The gospel sets me free so that I can be spoken to at a deeper place. It sets me free so that I can sit and be ministered to through my discomforts or my comforts to something deeper than that which I just grew up with. It has less to do with how I grew up and how God is growing me in a supernatural way. If there's just white church, black church, Republican church, Democrat church, I don't care what wave of nationalism and populism or, or emotion sweeps through our nation, if there's anything that informs the church more about the gospel than how Jesus set me free, God forbid my work is done in vain. The gospel frees us from ourselves, from our own attempts at self-liberation. And Paul said, this is not going to happen. Where I'm doing all this, 
and it's in vain because God's word is more powerful than your preferences and your rules, he's saying. So he goes and causes a stink. He goes, and I would love to say that when he goes back to Jerusalem, it was just all good, like, oh man, yeah, like he straightened him out pretty easily. No, he, he uh, had some problems with a few people, and he had a stronger word from God that it was problems that he was supposed to cause for redemptive reasons. Verses 4 and 5, he says, In this moment when I'm setting the gospel before them, there was false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. These people proclaiming that this is the way to go knew that, man, even the thing that I'm trying to bring people into, there's something better that they have. And so instead of saying, maybe I'll just yield to this message, they're thinking, man, let me just bring that person down. Has it ever happened with you? I've sometimes done that. Oh man, this person, let me, let me just bring them down a little bit. Bring them down to my level. No, I need to be free to worship Jesus like them. So these people slip in. This false message of the old yoke of bondage says that they sneak out our freedom we have in Christ Jesus to bring us into slavery. But listen, verse 5, last verse in our passage. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. I have one point, one point message that I see from this whole passage, and that is this, that real freedom comes only from the truth of the gospel. I know that that that's an exclusive statement, and it's only repressive if it's not true. It's true that real freedom comes only from the truth of the gospel. Paul had reason to cause a stink in the church in order to reinforce and further embolden people about the freedom that comes from the mercy of Jesus to preserve the truth of the gospel. Paul was adamant about this because This message is true. How else can we be set free but by the blood of Jesus? There's no other way. And this exclusive statement is is only repressive or unkind if it's untrue. But it's true. Jesus came to save sinners. And I am the foremost of them. Jesus is the only one who has the ability to pay the price to include all sinners like me to himself. And Christianity is only uh, regressive, taking you backwards, only regressive if Jesus is regressive. But consider Jesus' life. He lived a perfect life full of love, holiness, brilliance, the very breath of heaven. He died a sacrificial death willingly. He rose again from the dead. And for 40 days, there was 500 eyewitnesses that saw the man that they they knew was dead, very much not dead, and saw him doing miracles and walking through walls. 
And what they saw, they were willing to be so free that they were willing to die and be tortured for this message that none of these 500 people recanted of. The most logical explanation is because it's true. And after 40 days, they saw him ascend into heaven. Right now, as I'm talking to you, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. I mean, that is not regressive. That is quintessentially progressive. His kingdom will have no end. Our faith is true and it's freeing because Jesus is a liberator and he is free. But the thing that we all do is we subtly, all of us, it's not just the people that Paul was causing a stink about. God causes a stink with me all the time about lies and partial truths that I kind of slink into. And I think we tend to, to embrace kind of lesser false freedoms than the, the full freedom of the gospel. First of all, I, I think uh, that if, if freedom is only found in the truth of the gospel, well, there's a few categories that we accept that are lesser truths than the, than the gospel. There's truthless uh, freedom. Truthless sounds like toothless because it is. It, it, relativism, you have to fully give yourself to this idea that there is no absolute truth. But if you have to make an absolute truth statement to dissuade people from believing in absolute truth, it's kind of confusing and not helpful. And you give yourself completely to a thought that gives nothing back. And leaves you alone with your sin. That's not helpful. That's not progressive. Truthless freedom doesn't work. But what we often get caught up in is, is partial truths that we think that leads to freedom. Here, we see this all the time. Like, Jesus is love. Okay, well, that's true. But that's not all the truth. That Jesus is only love. Jesus is holy love with an H. But he's not holy love with a W. Jesus isn't only love. Jesus' holiness and Jesus' righteousness informs his love. And so anything lesser than the the truth in his love is not Jesus' love. Jesus' love is driven by the boundary of his truth. And the truth of the gospel, that freedom is the only freedom that's available. I'll give you an example. My kids have played... Uh, in, in yards with fences their whole lives. Uh, they used to have a smaller yard with a fence, and now they have a fence, but they play in fences with yards. The reason my kids can play in freedom is because they're in relationship with parents that love them, that watch over them, that care for them. It's the same reason that you and I can walk in freedom with God, because Jesus sets us in relationship with God the Father. That's the reason why we have freedom. But God the Father protects our freedom with boundaries, just like we want to protect our kids to enjoy the freedom of being our kids playing in a yard with a fence. It's not free for my kids to play in a yard where they're just going to run out into the street and get hit by a truck. That's not freedom. And likewise, If Jesus makes us free by being his kids, by being restored to relationship with God, the truth of his word protects the freedom that he's purchased. It preserves it. 
The truth of God's word doesn't limit or regress your fun or your freedom or your sexuality or your financial decisions. The truth of God's word in the gospel protects your freedom. So you're not spoiled by yourself and by sin. Jesus is the only one who can do this. Jesus isn't only love. And Jesus isn't loveless truth either. It's the truth of the gospel that sets us free. I've had so many moments in my life where I've, I've, I've tried to cling to a type of, of religion that was devoid of the love of God. But Jesus, the whole truth of the gospel is what preserves us. Real freedom comes only from the truth of the gospel. And the truth of the gospel comes through what Jesus has done for us. And what it sets you free to be and grow in is amazing. The truth of the gospel doesn't just set you free to do what you want. It sets you free to want what God wants too. Gives you new delights, new desires. I was reading this psalm the other day. This is what the truth of God does when you place your faith in God. Psalm 119, if your law had not been my, my delight, I would have perished in my affliction, basically my own bondage. I will never forget your precepts, for by then you've given me life. I am yours. Save me. I've sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I've seen a limit to all perfection, or in other words, all of man's attempts to self-liberate with rules. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Meaning that which you think is restrictive is the road that leads to life. Jesus, it's one person. It's just one. But there's one person that sets everyone free, that places their faith in him. I want to go to read you a story from Christian history. And I want to comment on the importance of this first. Uh, I think in our culture and and in every culture, it's always been important to free yourself from what everyone's arguing with today. We get partial truths about how we can liberate ourselves and and be passionate uh, on the right or passionate on the left, but not be right before God with our passion. And we need God to help us, but we need the saints of history to help us have better perspective. So we're not just arguing about the president or football games or things that it's so easy to get divisive about. We need to be smarter and more wise than just our culture around us. Uh, I'm actually taking uh, a moratorium on a, a, a rest from social media so that I can actually read a little more uh, and connect with the saints of the past. Uh, I'm not talking like Dio de los Muertos, like connecting. I'm talking like learning (laughs) from people of the past. I want to tell you a story about Thomas Johnson. Lord, help us to be like Thomas. 1836. Thomas Johnson was born into slavery, institutional slavery outside of Fairfax, Virginia. 
at eight years old, uh, Thomas' mother was sold into slavery elsewhere, and he was torn abruptly from his own mother at eight years old. At nine years old, his job, one of his jobs in the morning was to place slippers on Master Bennett's son's feet. And uh, at one point, he, he didn't know his right from his left. He was a nine-year-old boy, and so he would guess. And whenever he'd guess wrong, he'd get beat for it. And one time, the, this little boy complained to one of the, the foremen that, that Thomas was just not getting this right. Thomas was taken out to the whipping post, his hands tied around the post, and he began to be whipped in the back naked. He turned after the second whip, and he, he sees Mrs. Bennett to his right, thinking that she's going to interfere and, and help uh, provide some mercy for this innocent child. But instead, she just shrugs her head at this little boy. Like, how dare you? Just, I'm ashamed of you, and walks away as he continues to be beaten. This is nine years old. You can imagine why this young man grew up dreaming about freedom and escaping to the north. He had tried a few things that would have gotten him killed, if not for an older man, Ezekiel, who was also under the bondage of slavery, that since Thomas had uh, lost his mother, Ezekiel was looking out for him even when he didn't know. In fact, Ezekiel had taken a few beatings for Thomas on multiple occasions. And he goes up to Thomas and he says, Thomas, I'm telling you, boy, you're looking for freedom in all the wrong places. Ten years later, 1857, Thomas had had enough. He was 21 years old. He decides, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sneak out at midnight and I'm going to escape and go to the north. I'm going to make it. And as he's walking by Ezekiel's quarters, he hears a strange sound he'd never heard of. Never heard this sound. At midnight, he peeks in the window to Ezekiel's quarters, and there's a whole bunch of people whisper singing. They're whisper singing praise. It was an old spiritual steal away home, steal away to Jesus. And he sneaks in there, and Ezekiel is leading a secret church meeting. He hears the gospel of Jesus. And he's set free. He talks about the freedom he experienced. And that, that night, he went to bed in peace for the first time in his life. He was born again. Now fast forward eight, eight, eight years. April 2nd, 1865. And Thomas is back serving Master Bennett's son. Instead of putting slippers on his feet, he's putting boots on his feet. In the Confederate uh, camp putting boots on his feet so that he can go and fight a war to keep him in bondage. On April 2nd, he goes to sleep, and they wake up. He and Ezekiel wake up at 4 a.m. There's a commotion. They go outside on April 3rd, and the whole Confederate camp is deserted. No one's there. They sneak away and go into the city of Richmond, as the Union Army is coming into the city and tearing down the Confederate flag, placing the American flag up on its stand. And he and Ezekiel are embracing each other and crying for freedom. But the story doesn't end here. Because what they do next 
is just unthinkable. They mount up on horses and they go back to their plantation. This is unthinkable. That this, was, uh, this was knowingly putting themselves in risk for last-minute vigilance or retribution. And they go back and they find the plantation completely empty. Everyone had escaped. And as they go next to the main house, they hear this weird sound. So they go in and they, see, they hear a woman's voice weeping, crying. Thomas starts to go up the stairs. Ezekiel grabs his arm and says, no, we're not doing this. We need to go. And Thomas looks at him and says, we need to go up there and help whoever that is. I think Thomas knew that it was Mrs. Bennett. Thomas walks up the stairs, presses on the door to the master suite, opens the door, and he hears the cock of a shotgun. And in his face are two barrels and a woman that's terrified and full of hate. They say, she says, what are you doing here? And an eternity of, of time passes. And Thomas says, man, we're not here to hurt you. We're here to help you. She drops the gun and begins to weep as Thomas takes her into his arms and comforts her. She says, Mr. Bennett left me. They all left me. They had probably escaped to Alabama or Texas. They don't know. But he says, we're here to help you. We're not here to harm you. Can we pray for you? And Thomas tells Ezekiel to come and pray. And we actually have recorded what Ezekiel prayed in this moment. He says, dear father, I pray now for Mrs. Bennett. Ezekiel says, I pray that in these trying days that you would protect her, watch over her, and give her peace. And Lord, I forgive Ezekiel choked on his words, but he did his best to bring them forward. I forgive Mr. Bennett, and I forgive Mrs. Bennett, and I pray that above all else, Lord, that she would turn to you and know your forgiveness too. I pray that she would know you as her helper, her heavenly father. We ask these things now of you, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus. See, for years, there, was, there were people held under, under the institutional bondage of slavery that were the only free people on this plantation. And at the moment where they had their freedom on earth finally purchased for them, they chose to go back to preach a message that could set their former captives free. There is no explanation for this really true story outside of the gospel of Jesus that frees you and frees me today. There's no explanation for the life of Thomas Johnson. I appreciate the Union Army. I love the troops. I thank God for freedom. But the freedom I have in this nation was purchased by a greater battle that only Jesus could win. And that freedom is available for you and I today. There's no explanation for Thomas's life. There's no explanation for the Apostle Paul's life. Let me read you one verse here. In Galatians, he says, I went back to this church and people were thinking, man, this is the guy that used to kill us. What is he doing here? Verse 24 of chapter 1, and they glorified God because of me. 
And as I close, I want to ask you, as people consider your life, the things that you stand for, the things that you speak, the things that you say, what do they glorify?